Hey, FFR listeners, this is the producer Rob speaking. It's that time of year when everyone starts to think about the important things in life, like our taxes. Did you know that a donation to Feminist Frequency is actually tax deductible? If you have a few bucks a month to spare, head on over to patreon.com slash femfreak, F-E-M-F-R-E-Q. Help us out, but also help yourself to all the great exclusive content that's available only to people who are signed up on our Patreon. She's wealthy, she's Western European, but if it comes to the other people saving themselves from the sound of a scary donkey in the dark of night, they will leave her to die. Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian. And I'm Kat Spada. And this is the first course of our three-episode series, Eat the Rich. And we're starving. (laughs) We took an all-expense-paid luxury cruise to the Bermuda Triangle of Sadness. I can't believe you made me read a pun. I hate (laughs) you so much. Yes, you do. (laughs) Oh. The latest film from Swedish satirical filmmaker Ruben Ostlund, Triangle of Sadness follows a dysfunctional couple of really, really good-looking people, Carl and Yaya, among the passengers, captain, and crew of a luxury superyacht. The vacationers, models, magnets, and oligarchs, grapple with the nuances of gender roles and the indignity of underlings who don't always perfectly cater to their every whim. When a storm rocks the boat, the shit really hits the fan, and it seems like (laughs) things couldn't go any worse until a pirate attack sinks the ship and a motley crew of survivors washes ashore on a remote, question mark, island. That's when things get really interesting. The cast includes Woody Harrelson, Dolly DeLeon, and the late Charles B. Dean, and the film has been nominated for Academy Awards for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay. So what do you do? I sell shit. The success of a luxury cruise mainly depends on you. I don't want to hear anybody saying no. It's always yes sir, yes ma'am. Do you think it's possible to wash them? I don't think that's possible, ma'am, because this is a motorized vessel. Yeah. So we don't have any sails. Joining us for this episode is a return guest who was with us during Cyberpunk Summer to talk about Total Recall, is professor, podcaster, and author Karen Tonkson. Chair of the USC Gender and Sexuality Studies Department, Karen's podcasts include the Gen X pop culture show Waiting to Exhale, the Amazing Race Queer Recap Examination, The gay Amazing Race, and she's the author of Relocations, Queer Suburban Imageries, and Why Karen Carpenter Matters. Welcome to the show, Karen. It's nice to be back, everyone. I know that uh, since the last time we spoke, I've really been devouring The gay Amazing Race with the latest season, so thank you for doing that show. I'm delighted that you're listening to it. I'm not sure how invested you are in The Actual Amazing Race, but... Uh, For anybody out there who's curious about what it is, it is a recap show of every new season of The Amazing Race, but it becomes increasingly more intensive in its queer overreading of every (laughs) aspect of the race, especially once the gay contestants end up being eliminated. I'm going to take a total digression before we get back to Triangle of Sadness. I'm a big Amazing Race fan. I've watched it for many years. Uh, there's uh, there's so much wrapped up in it. I used to watch it with my dad. My dad was named Phil. Phil's the host of the show. We used to travel. There's all this like emotional stuff. 
But at the same time, uh, listening to the podcast along with it, especially as a bisexual woman in a straight passing relationship, and I was like, oh, man, the bi erasure that's happening on this season. People are going to be freaking out. And, the, you know, it's just great because there's, there's women's rugby. There's, there's yeah. always some sort of, like, you know, burly helper along the side of the road. Exactly. It's just like it finds queer pleasure in a text that doesn't often produce it. So that's my whole life. Anyway, here we are. It's wonderful. We had a really interesting experience seeing Triangle of Sadness. Anita and I went and saw it together. And I had seen the trailer and really was like, I couldn't wait to see this movie. And Anita didn't know anything going in. So the like jackass forever sequence in the middle of the movie, I know it was a total shock to you, <laughs> Anita. But <laughs> I was dying. <laughs> like, yeah, just- I didn't... Uh- I didn't even know this was about rich people. I think I mentioned the movie in passing to someone and they're like, oh, is that the boat one? I was like, I have no fucking idea. And then when we talked about doing an Eat the Rich series, I was like, oh, I guess it's about rich people. Like, that's all. That's all I knew. Karen, what was your like initial response to this movie? Well, there are multiple boat ones, (laughs) I suppose, especially as you're doing this trio of episodes uh, for the pod. But we rented Triangle of Sadness. I'd been really excited about it. Actually, the very the, the only reason I think that I was first super stoked about it was because of all the buzz around Dolly DeLeon, uh-huh. who uh, plays, a, I guess, a domestic worker on the cruise ship in this film. And there's been, there was a lot of pre-Oster buzz around her performance. Unfortunately, she wasn't nominated in the supporting actress category. And, you know, every time that kind of uh, Filipino personality or actor or actress receives any international notoriety, we all take notice and we're like, okay, it must be good. We have to see it. So we rented it, watched it, and um, I loved her performance. I thought I would like it more than I did, but I guess we'll get into that. <laughs> I, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I didn't know what it was. Like, honestly, when it started, I'll have to say, uh, the initial scenes, the Balenciaga H&M scenes. Mm. Uh, with all the male models, sort of threw me for a loop because all of the other advertising I'd seen around the film revolved around the boat and Woody Harrelson in a kind of captain's outfit and Dolly. Yeah, it's um, it's a movie that has chapters and there there are title cards up there telling you it's time to go to the next you know set of circumstances, but. I think for me, like right off the bat, it was funnier than I expected it to be. Like it was more overtly like these are la- lines for you to laugh at. I was going to say laugh lines, but I didn't want it, us to get confused with actual <laughs> facial wrinkles. Um, <laughs> you don't want to be confused about the actual triangle of sadness. That, yeah. that reveal, you know, it's always funny when a movie like calls out the title. Uh, yeah, I don't know why. I just always notice it. And the way they did it in this movie was just it. It got me. I was like, yeah. oh, this is. Like, that's what you're naming your movie after. And so for people who haven't seen it, it is the little uh, in between the eyebrows frown line. But then, like, we were with this couple for a lot longer than I thought we were going to be. Like, their argument about paying for dinner and what does that mean and why are we even together and are you that wrapped up in generals? I was like, what is this movie about? Like, when are we going to get to it? Like, that was kind of the thing. And with Dolly de Leon, I'd heard a lot of, she wasn't an actress I was familiar with. And I'd heard chatter that, like, there's this, you know, it's kind of like with Troy Kotzer last year. Like, there's an actor you haven't heard of who's maybe in the mix for an Oscar. 
And so the fact that also she didn't really show up uh, substantially until like the last third of the movie was surprising to me. But um, I mean, I don't feel like I have that much to say about the beginning. Like really, it started for me once we got to the boat. It's interesting. So I haven't seen The Square, um, <laughs> which is a previous film from Ruben Osland. And uh, apparently this one is a lot more slapstick and a lot more funny and a lot more like obvious. Like it's not a subtle, a subtle take, right? Every moment, like there's no question about what is kind of happening. And so it was interesting to me near the beginning when like you see glimpses of what is to come, right? So the scene at the beginning where they're doing the modeling uh-huh. uh, and that like the the over the top announcer guy or whatever right. uh, is making them do this like back and forth between the different kinds of modeling. When it really was like, oh, this is like actually kind of a comedy was the elevator scene uh-huh. where they're having a fight through elevator doors. And I'm like, okay, I, like this is going to be funnier. And then it just kind of keeps going. So it's an interesting packaging of this type of film, especially in contrast to the other two films that we're going to talk about, which are also comedies in their own ways, right? Um, but that are they all kind of do them a little bit differently. So I think that that's what, one of the things that's interesting about the setup. I also think that like the progression of the chapters is interesting, right? Because you have like a, a like a a micro into like a slightly more systemic into like a more global kind of look in in the ways that the chapters approach class and wealth and power, really, because the power is the whole through thread. And so it's interesting that you have um, it framed as, well, one of the few industries in which women get more money Mm. and that this guy is the one talking about gender roles and that she's the one reinforcing the gender roles. And so there's something interesting here, especially when you get to the very end about the whole like power corrupts. So if she's holding more power, she's like reinforcing these gender roles and that that like behooves her or benefits her in some way. So I don't know, that threw me a little bit at the beginning where I was like, what are you doing with this? Like, what? why are you, why is this the container that you have chosen? That's an interesting, you know, we, when we were kind of identifying, okay, these are the, these are three kind of zeitgeisty movies right now. And they're talking about power and wealth. And Hollywood is like a, as, problematic as any other industry or like social structure in terms of power power and wealth and what it reinforces but this um fashion show at the beginning also is kind of like you know this isn't um a movie making fun of the movies but that fashion show is just as like artificial and ridiculous as anything else and how it's almost like an a social impact message during the fashion show but at the same time like these rich people have to step aside for these richer people. Um, yeah, and then uh, that's that's kind of the dynamic, I guess that it that it is getting at is not just like the stark difference between a billionaire and a domestic worker, but the differences among like between a millionaire and a billionaire. The differences between a very handsome man and a very, very handsome man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And and also, honestly, between the kind of niche sort of worlds of capital that exist, Uh right? So it's, you know, the models are our glimpse into a particular kind of creative class capital and of a particular kind of like youthful sense of, or at least youthful generational sense of influence, mm-hmm. the power in these really kind of 
small niche ways that gives you or grants you access to the cruise, but without enough capital to pay for your meal. Mm-hmm. So you get at least, you know, that rendering of one form of power, one form of uh, capital, creative and cultural capital. And then you get introduced, of course, on the boat to all the other sort of historical legacy forms of power and wealth and influence. So those are the things for me, like that's why we get the couple as the setup, you know, Mm. from the beginning and sliding into the scene of considerably older people who, you know, have over the course of time still retain their wealth as opposed to these two who seem or appear wealthy, the models who really just don't have anything. Right. And they don't that what they have is not like transitive. It's it's going to run out so soon. Yeah. So when we're on the ship, we encounter these in particular, these three very wealthy uh, characters. So there's like just kind of bland fill in the blanks tech tech rich guy. He's like a lonely guy at the bar um, who has a fancy watch, whatever. Um, we have <laughs> this this Russian oligarch who's played by Zlatko Burich. Um, who was in the movie 2012, the Roland Emmerich disaster movie. And if I recall correctly, because don't worry, I've seen that movie multiple times. Um, it's one of those like, but I have money. I should get on the like apocalypse, you know, save humanity ship. So there's just a nice little parallel there. And my favorites, um, who I almost wish we had seen more of, the uh, the British couple yes. whose industry That's- has... That's- been involved in preserving democracy around the world. I felt like we saw this in the theater. I mean, Anita and I were like vibrating in our seats when that happened. I Can we just spend a moment on that? Because it is really, it's given to us. It's like a little gift and the movie doesn't do too much with it. They do have a, a very funny, you know, return to that later. But it was one of my favorite moments where they're like, where you just like, almost immediately know what's happening so you're you're kind of like observing the like you you're holding all of the knowledge of the space and you're just watching the couple or the the models come to understand what they're talking about and it's just i think it's just it's dialogued so well so they you know basically they're like we're preserving democracy and they're like what does that mean and they're like uh, they're we- they're fucking weapons manufacturers, right? And they're just yeah. this like sweet old british couple that would like appear unassuming or whatever um and and we do return to that when the pirates attack and uh th- and this is so slapsticky like this is just the most like i think this is like the height of the slapstick of this movie but like the pirates throw uh, a grenade on the ship and like the older woman leans down and is like oh this is one of ours and then like whoosh, the whole ship explodes <laughs> right and you're like oh my god what is this movie and i was like oh this is the end Right. And it wasn't, right? It was like, okay, now there's a whole nother phase of the movie. And, and the thing that I really loved about that is they even complain for a moment that they used to have a much more lucrative product. And they had some other name for it, but it was landmines. Uh-huh. And But they made it through their hard times, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, um, not that I know a lot about piracy, but I'm thinking, okay, I know there's a community of people who have been impacted by landmines and who maybe have had to seek out uh, illegal ways to to get by and survive, like not to excuse the kind, you know, violent behavior that maybe we see in this movie. But it was just like there were a lot of great little knots tied, I thought, in that kind of 
just somebody coming in and out of the story in yeah. little ways. Um, I'm thinking also about the scene with, I think it was Dimitri's wife who, who, so there's a scene at the beginning of the ship section where the woman, Paula, 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 who runs the servers, uh, she's like, she does this like rile them up kind of like prep meeting uh, before you're but like, okay, felt very like sports energy, right? Um, and telling everyone that like, you never say no, you solve all their problems. These are rich fucking people and maybe they'll tip you at the end, right? But really like just the most on the nose around like how service workers like get treated like shit and maybe we'll get some pennies thrown at them for it. So there's this whole scene where Dimitri's wife like tries to get one of the servers to get in the pool and then ends up getting everyone on the ship in the pool, which delays dinner. And like, it's just the most unreasonable request. Right. And you're just like watching this unfold over many scenes. And I, you know, all of these things are like, oh my God, these rich people are so entitled and they're so out of their goddamn minds and they're so disconnected from reality. Um, And I think that that's a big piece of like, what does it mean to make a movie about this and to watch a movie about this? And what is our relationship as different audiences of different class backgrounds connecting with this, right? Like, is there some kind of uh, cathartic release in being able to laugh at the rich people who are making the world actively worse, right? Well, first of all, you I mean, it's a satire to send up, right? So I guess, you know, the, it, it because how awful things have gotten really wants makes most of us want to give up and just cry or whatever or exist in a state of sadness which is in the title right um uh it's important to kind of use humor as our perspective on this because it allows us at least the opportunity to break it down in our heads a little bit and to see the kind of you know um like all of these inflated uh you know kind of depictions of uh how disconnected people are from just you know uh even the as you say the kind of maybe not one percent but exemplified by the models those in that kind of second tier Mm. of wealth or influence or what have you um the thing about it that strikes me though is that you know we see all of these brown workers on the boat we get we know that like you know the the sweaty the sweaty hot guy with a beard gets fired right because, you know, the model boyfriend is jealous of the fact that he's, you know, out there kind of um, flexing, you know, his his rugged masculinity in front of his model girlfriend. Muscles and that then, come from actually working and not... Working from... Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, non-manscaped muscles. <laughs> and then you see or you're introduced to largely Filipino domestic workers on the boat doing the janitorial work, doing the cooking, doing the mechanical work. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's striking about the film, of course, is that we spend all of our attention for most of the film on all of the heinous and horrific rich folks. Mm-hmm. And we still, like, kind of continue to silence and sort of, like, parody the the true underclass of the boat, which is all of those brown people. Well, the kind of middle, like, sort of service workers who are there who could be accepted and tipped and given, you know, large cash tips by the, the consumers on the boat, um, get a slightly bigger role. I don't know. I mean, 
this is yeah this has kind of been my issue with all of these movies is i keep well spoilers i hate glass onion with a raging fiery passion but like there is usually like one character that is supposed to be the stand-in for the not rich um but i i i I feel uh, some tension around what you're talking about that i haven't been able to quite grapple with because it is it is starring the rich people. It is from the it is from the perspective of the rich people, even if it's making fun of them, right? Mm. And so, like, it doesn't mean that we can't have that. But then, what like what would this movie look like if it was actually from the gaze and the lens of the working class on the ship, right? Or the you know, like, how would that be different? How would that be a different movie? Yeah, or even just not even directly, you know, a direct inversion of like the gaze, but you know, some sort of spreading out of that gaze. We, right. you know, we kind of like they will always be ben- all the way beneath the undercommons the whole way, right? Until an exceptional event creates the occasion to finally see somebody else's story. And I think that that is what the film is getting roundly praised for is that final third where we see or witness the ascendance of one of these silent, you know, indistinguishable. Uh, non-characters who is brown, like mm-hmm. then become a, a sort of overlord in the Lord of the Flies setting of the post-pirate encounter. But but anyway, so I, I mean, that's why the film, I think, has its, you know, has, has been roundly embraced. Um, but for me, the kind of opulent and kind of slapsticky, excessive critique of the rich by kind of, you know, training the eye on the rich and the disgruntleds who serve them started to get tedious around Woody Harrelson's character and, you know, the the ship captain's debates about Marx yeah. and Marxism and communism with Dimitri, the Russian oligarch who lived through, like, you know, communism, but who emerged as, you know, a great autocratic billionaire yeah that definitely felt unnecessary like it was happening when there was so much like bombast too going on in this movie that the i i'm very curious i mean the soundstage that they were on must have been fascinating how these actors and i heard it was a fairly or i read it was grueling that they sometimes would do 20 takes of a scene uh, I can only imagine when you're being pitched like that and the such, scene where you know, she visual or, effects is happening. That scene where the woman was trying to throw up in the toilet and was just being like swayed back and forth on the floor and oh. all of the muck. Like I was laughing so fucking hard, but I, I was also thinking that I was like, oh, my God, filming this must have been a grueling nightmare. And like there are occasional acting roles where you think there is no vanity in this person right now who is putting themselves through this for this film. But there's already so much to pay attention to that it really did make it sort of like um, an over uh, stimulation when they're having this back and forth and turning the, the microphone on so that everyone can hear them reading quotations to each other or reciting like different bon mots about capitalism and and communism. And at the same time, there this is a moment so i wanted to talk about the uh, like the janitorial workers who are on this boat 
We first see them when Paula, who reminded me of Tabitha from Tabitha's Salon Takeover. I don't know if you... (laughs) Oh, totally. I remember Tabitha. (laughs) She was this sort of like severe, short blonde hair, and she she was Australian. Australian, and she was like the um, bar rescue of of hair salons. <laughs> She'd go in and go, that's it, I'm taking over. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, she's giving the the below deck crew this like, you're going to get tips, you're going to get money, 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 and they're stamping and stomping. And then there's just like a quick shot to the staff down below who kind of hear this, and they've probably heard this every time they've gone out on a cruise. We don't really see much of them again until this seasickness explosion has happened. And now we have all of these women who've come just diligently to just scrub and clean and clean up all of this puke and shit all over the place while it's still happening, while the boat is still rocking and rolling. And it's like, it's this sort of weird, it is like a homogeneity of just all of these women at once are indistinguishable. They're just here to clean. And it's not until... Dolly de Leon that we actually get one character who has a presence like with the there are, you know three or four of the sort of like mid to upper level servant on the ship that we do get to hear from so yeah like I would love to know is is once we see her on the island we know who she is there was she like that before was she in any particular way bossy or whatever like to other people before this extraordinary act. We have no idea what her character is like. I think the general read is that she's not and that it's the situation of topsy-turviness that produces that. But as a Pinai person, a Filipino woman, like, uh, who, you know, I know that attitude and I, I've encountered it and I've seen it from people of, of, Do- of Dolly's characters, you know, um, class background and, and role. And, uh, you know, I don't know. There there are a couple quick things I want to say. First of all, I also belly laughed and laughed really hard at this film. And, you know, it's it was kind of only after the fact and after watching that final third, the, the part of it that everybody's just like, wow, what a great twist, that I had a weird feeling. I was left with a weird feeling. Mm-hmm. And we can talk a little bit more about that, obviously. I think we're going to get into that. Um, but the other... T- quick things that you know the the two things that stuck out to me about like the the the, mo- the you know the sort of sections on the boat are that as you mentioned the swimming scene where all the staff are being pried away from their work and being made to swim to indulge this woman's whim to wish to spread joy to all the hardworking people but of course spreading joy is actually like kind of ruining their lives and that is you know yeah um, it takes them away from doing what they have to do and makes things harder for them and i thought that that was like probably one of the most important messages to kind of come out of the film is the extent to which you know pleasure or charity is actually sometimes in and of itself the thing that's most harmful hmm. for folks in the undercommons and then the that debate between the captain and Dimitri, uh, Woody Harrelson and Dimitri, you know, it's just like part of what makes it overwhelming is just the kind of deluge of mansplaining <laughs> that, you know, uh, that, you know, that, that appropriately leads to this like grotesque, scatological like event 
And I know that it's supposed to be a critique of that, but at the same time, I don't know. I feel like there's something heroic about it <laughs> amidst all of that that, I, you know, I'm like, whatever. Karen, did you yeah. see White Noise? I did see White Noise. I fell asleep the- <laughs> at some point. <laughs> but I'm sure you saw the, the professors professoring at each other. Oh, yes. Yeah, of course. I mean, th- those parts are very familiar to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's go to the island. Yeah. 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 Karen, you sort of prompted this. I'm curious to have you kick off your how you felt about it. Well, at first, at first, I was like super into it. I was like, oh, shit. OK, here's what here's what everybody's talking about. Right. Here's where we're going to get Dolly chewing up the scenery. And here's where we're going to get some sort of other like a glimpse at what other world is reconstituted from really the shit that's wrought by this these excesses right and um and i loved obviously those moments where she gets to brandish her power i think we're supposed to relish Mm. in those scenes where the domestic now the person who is an islander who is capable of surviving you know on an island and you know, who could go fishing, someone who, you know, sort of found herself at the apex of, you know, what few commodities have been left, like, that are in her charge. Uh, You know, that's that tantalizes with a lot of exciting possibilities. But then it, you know, but then it's sort of like, okay, if we're going to talk about how power corrupts everyone, if that's where we're going to kind of end up, like, there's no point in handing the reins over to this woman, right? Because all it does is I think it just sort of underscores how weird power looks and what a kind of spectacle power is and how ultimately, you know, power will fail if it's handed over to somebody mm. who is from the underclass or from the, un- from the undercommons that they, they it flattens everybody out. They, too, are no different than the very worst of of those folks on the boat because in the end it's you know it's a it's a pretty sad cynical take not that i wanted her to be you know sanctified in any way but i think that there were like more interesting places one could have gone with the dynamics um that ensued once she had control over the, all the commodities i think um i'm interested when you just said, you know, we're supposed to relish these moments of her power. And I felt like, you know, maybe this is too simplistic or like moralistic of a of a read, but it was very easy to relish the power she took when she like that she was powerful, that she could fish, that she could be strong, that she is this woman that many of these people would never have looked at twice, but she is this physical embodiment like she's just physically powerful and that's exciting but then again it's like that's completely muted that takes her voice out of it entirely if it's just about her physical power that's also kind of dehumanizing the fact that once she starts really engaging with them talking to these other people and saying this is how it's going to be that's when it gets ugly is weird and again like we never learn anything else about her this is completely in the vacuum i think there were also like there were a lot of unsettling things happening at the same time we have the character who may be one of the pirates who has or maybe someone who worked on the ship 
and he's there and they don't really go too far with that but it's just supposed to be i don't know i don't know what it's supposed to be but i think the thing that for me was the like really struck me about that island sequence was the woman who had experienced a stroke and who was disabled and we've seen her a few times on the ship but there was such a distinction between like she's wealthy she's western european but if it comes to the other people saving themselves from the sound of a scary donkey in the dark <laughs> of night, they will leave her to die. Uh -huh. And they will sort of like begrudgingly maybe help her if if it's convenient. Like that was another another distinction that I think this movie was showing between like even here's here's a wealthy white woman, um, but she's disabled. So here's this other way in which she's subjugated like within a, a, a subclass but um those are my my island thoughts <laughs> island I, thoughts that's a that's weird i don't know why i said that <laughs> it works i still don't know where i land on this part and i think there is a there is there is an immediate satisfaction and joy in her just being like one for me button for you well, like i get all of the shit i did all the work fuck you all you've treated me like shit like there is an immediate visceral satisfaction to that moment right um the guy who shows up that is um a worker what whoever he's work on the ship theoretically he's not like a wealthy person like the fact that he gets lumped in with all of them because he can't start a fire mm. is weird to me Right. And that he like immediately associates with those people and gets lumped in with those people, despite having more in common with her likely in some ways, at least in like class strata. Right. And so that felt weird to me. And if we're going to make a statement about divisions of class and, and that sort of thing. So so it seemed a little simplistic of like, oh, well, power corrupts and now she has all this power and like fuck everyone else to some degree. Like, what the fuck did this guy do? You know? And also, like, the implied grotesquerie of her, you know, sexual yeah. relationship with uh, Carl. Model. Yeah. With Carl, Bo model yeah. man. With model man, yeah. It's supposed to be funny that he's kind of into it. Mm. And then, you know. Which and, is gross, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, or like, oh, ha, 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 how gross that he's in, he is actually kind of into it. Or, first of all, it's gross that she you know, demands his, you know, payment in sexual favors for, you know, all the all the stuff that she has access to. I mean, you know, um and then it, it's just the, the it's just a gag that, you know, it's just like, oh, okay, he has this hot girlfriend, Yaya, who he's had all this tension with since Act One. And now he's finally getting dummy mommied. <laughs> and he's super into it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Which I guess, you know, that's sort of like, that's that can be kind of fun. But I think that the way it was depicted was not one that allowed for Dolly's character to have actual arrows or to be actually seductive or to be, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about you all, but it felt like it was not a flattering depiction of her sexuality. No, I agree. And I, and, and, and I think this goes back to what, Kat, you're talking about is like, we don't really know anything about her. And like she was, she doesn't become fleshed out in any way. Like she, 
it's a, it's disappointing because I think that she exists to be an icon of power of corruption of power. I don't think she's any more than that because like her being like you're now my sex toy is ju- it, like to me it's just a very cynical like here's just another way that she gets to have all of these things and 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 she gets to have whatever she wants. So now she wants to have hot sex with the hot guy, right? As opposed to like uh, what what you're talking about, where there's just like a little bit more to her and a little bit more depth and like or or any kind of like of emotional complication around uh, the suffering of others in some way, you know, and like, is it d- does she have to? Do we need her to be this sort of like I don't I don't need her to be a like um like you were saying uh, earlier like you know, a a sort of mother take care of everyone kind of like martyr character. But I also wanted a little bit more nuance here. But also this movie is not a nuanced movie. So, you know, I just I think it becomes complicated when we bring in the class and race aspect of it in this regard, as opposed to because it's it's closer to punching down than it is to punching up. Right. Yeah. And there is a nice um, moment when Yaya says something like aren't you excited to to get back to see your kids and it's just a complete assumption that this woman has children she doesn't she says she doesn't and she's never talked about that like did yaya accidentally ask someone on the ship a question and hear that somebody else had kids or did she just assume and like i was like we do get to see it's left a little bit up to your interpretation like how far the sexual relationship goes between her and Carl, but then you do get to see them having an intimate act. And it's like, I was worried that we wouldn't. Like, I was worried that it would just be like, well, we wouldn't show this woman sexually. You know what I mean? Like, that it would just be sort of implied that he was rubbing her shoulders and, you know, maybe giving her a kiss on the cheek. And it was like, what is this? The other thing is that for a movie that is trying to touch on so many different elements of how we engage transactionally with each other um it doesn't really like say anything about sex work like there's a uh we know that like there is a an existence of people who are paid to go on yachts with wealthy clients to be their partner for that period of time um yaya has some advice for carl about how to flatter a person who is demanding your affection. Um, so it's clear that like this is a world that they have engaged with in some in some way, but it's like it doesn't seem to have like a particularly progressive stance on this. It's just saying like, yeah, isn't it creepy that like somebody who no one would ever want to fuck would want to take advantage of you in that way? And it's like perfectly. I, it was absolutely trying to make that a punchline and there wasn't anything humorous about it in the in the moment like i thought both of the actors did a great job um uh dolly and the actor who played carl were really convincing in like yeah i can see how in this like weird environment and situation they would have formed this dynamic um but then it's it just also exists in this weird, like, vacuum. Like, what what happens once they get on that lifeboat seems like it doesn't even necessarily take place in this movie or on this island. It's just this other little um, 
interlude. Yeah. But then, uh, well, I just kind of leading us towards the the outcome is is then her um she she dives even deeper into uh um darkness later. Are are you going to withhold that from your listeners? <laughs> no, I didn't know. It. I just did, I wanted to be vague in case Anita, you were like, actually, let's take us back <laughs> a scene. Yeah. Well, so I did. I do. Uh, yeah, well, I just wanted to, you were talking about the woman with a disability, or, uh, yeah, that, um, yeah. I don't know why, I stalled there. Um, and I just wanted to acknowledge that, like, it felt gross that she became a punchline. Like, it felt mm. gross that she became a, because she does symbolize, the, like, what you were saying around um, even this wealthy woman who who has a disability, like, everyone's just going to abandon her. Like, everyone's on their own with what they have. But, like, her only being able to say in the clouds over and over and over again becomes a joke. Right. Right. And it becomes this punchline that I feel like I just feel a little gross about. You know, given the lack of representation of disabled people in the media in general, like, it felt kind of gross that she was a joke in in all of this. Anyways, we can now get back to that. But And and also, like, uh, the fact that when, I guess, it's Carl and our crew member slash potential pirate and our <laughs> german our german lady are all the like the pretzel thieves yeah, uh, yeah. i like that and, she was included in that at least that was nice yeah <laughs> she's one of the pretzel thieves and she's like absolutely like yeah give me more pretzels but there's no um you know it, it's just like she's she's completely invisible really to any of them there those poor actors had to eat so many goddamn pretzels the scene where yaya is like hoarding the pretzels too and anytime i see a lot of eating in movies i'm like those poor actors are just like eating like anytime like you have to chug you're like how many five takes at least minimum you have to do over and over again sorry i can't this is my (laughs) director brain that i'm like i'm so sorry that you had to do that um but yeah yeah i think that you know it's it's a it's an aside worth noting well with a setup we get in the beginning with you know yaya and carl and them negotiating what kind of transactional relationship they're having right um you know and then all the examples that we get on the boat of different transactional relationships whether or not it's you know there was also like i was slightly confused about the um fertilizer the russian fertilizer oligarch Mm. Wife and was there like a third or was that yeah third? was it like his daughter or like a, a mistress daughter? yeah I like, was so it, confused about I that was, relationship yeah. yeah so so there's also some dynamic there where I'm like wait is that the daughter or is that just like the mistress and then like nobody cares it's just like they're traveling as a kind of tri- a different triangle yeah <laughs> um look at and then you making know and, connections everywhere <laughs> well and then i guess this is the teacher's job is like to make yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like a random assemblage of things but then you know at uh there are also all these other couples right like the, the husband who had to take care of the woman who had the stroke the other you know um all the other different kinds of transactional relationships you see and then mm. finally of course the the transactional relationships everyone has to forge with Dolly's character on the island, uh, you know, um, undoes some of the pre-existing ones. And so, you know, you know, is the film really saying all relationships are fundamentally at base transactional and there's like really nothing beyond that? Yeah. And I kept thinking, okay, this is a different movie, but I kept thinking like she could teach them how to light a fire. 
She could teach them how to fish, and that fucking sucks for her. And that is a great example of how marginalized and oppressed people have to fucking teach everyone with privilege all the shit. But, like, you can create a little society where it's not just you doing all the things. So, like, she's withholding that knowledge so that she gets to hold the power. But but also, nobody was like, cool, I don't know how to do this. Will you show me? Like, let right. me help. And so they create this little matriarchy so you're kind so there's like a bit of an assumption that she's showing some of the women how to do things to like help her out maybe but I like I don't know you know the the fucking like revolutionary like utopian in me is like well then they could create a new social dynamic here right but instead you get to the end and it's a resort island because of course it fucking is <laughs> um and I, it annoyed me that I didn't click into that as soon as the person th- that was walking around selling like a you know, a a bunch of hats. bags and hats and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, I I was so like, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't click into that immediately. Um, you learn it's a resort island. There's a resort on the other side of the island, right? Um, and when Yaga's like, oh my God, we're free. And then Abigail is like, oh, cool, I'm going to murder you. So I get to be powerful forever or whatever. And I was just like, I kind of rolled my eyes. Like I was kind of like, Okay, like, yeah, I get that this is how you're ending this movie based on everything else that you've done, but, uh, uh, like, it just... Yeah, but I, I, but also, the you know, just the fact that she's unwilling to imagine a different kind of world, uh, Dolly's character, is unwilling to, like, imagine, um, y- you know, or, or that none of them are, mm-hmm. are willing to imagine another kind of world or way of being together. Uh, I mean, it's it's a. I guess that's edgy because it's a dark and deep and cynical take. But it also it kind of runs counterintuitive to how a lot of people in Dolly's position actually have had to create and manufacture and like really fashion better worlds, more livable worlds for themselves and for the people around them mm. all the time. So it kind of. I, I think that you know it doesn't just obscure her labor, labor on the ship or anything like that but it does kind of you know more often than not like folks in that position or who have been in dolly's character's position uh on the island and on the boat are doing everything they can to actually kind of bring people with them or at least sustain others Uh in ways that aren't just you know about like lording power over them so you know i don't know i think that there's a very flat sense of what power is and where its inclinations are and it also just yeah it just like kind of evacuates any more complex sense of desires even kind of gross and manipulative ones i feel like you know i think that in the kind of broad brush strokes of you know everybody being you know power hungry in their own way or wanting to like attain that that position or that status we lose other desires that are also kind of complicated Mm-hmm. might yeah. be more interesting you know yeah i love uh, this this just helped me really understand why i feel icky the the flattening of power and the like the 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 lack of of nuance around those intricacies i think is what i haven't been able to quite verbalize uh, as to why i like walked out of this movie despite enjoying it being like this didn't do it this this didn't do what I wanted it to do. Not that it needs to serve me, but you know what I mean. Like it, it's uh, it, there's a simplisticness to it that I couldn't quite name. So thank yeah. you for being our guest on this podcast and helping no, me no, understand no, no, look, that. I, look, I laughed, I laughed and laughed, and then like the final third happened, and then I was like, huh, 
And then there was a kind of empty, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like the kind of emptiness that was like, wow, I'm really thinking about this a lot. You what know, if like, the movie, we actually need to wrap up, but what if the movie just ended in the second act, right? What if it didn't go to the island? Right? Like that's a different movie. Totally. And well, I think it, there, there's an argument to be made for like the explosion and it ends and that's the movie. I'd be like, I'd be so here for that to some degree, you know? <laughs> it kind of felt like he was trying to break that second act, like, in, down into its simplest atoms or something, you know, like just based on the fact that now that we're on this island, like once you see um, Dimitri's wife's body wash up on shore and he's heartbroken, but then he immediately starts taking her jewelry off of her or that he and so the tech though. guy <laughs> offer Abigail their watches as in exchange for, you know, some of her protection, basically. And, like, that kind of asks the question, it's like, are you operating on the assumption that, like, you're going to get rescued tomorrow and you're going to be able to go sell that watch for gold? Or are you operating on the assumption that, like, you live here forever now? <laughs> like, what, <laughs> you know, and I guess every kind of, like, Lord of the Flies scenario has to ask that question. But, um, yeah, I mean, I just, I suppose then, you know, we get the reveal. We're on a resort island. And this is just the last thing if we can spend a moment on, which is Yaya and Abigail alone. You think this whole setup has been that they're going to come to conflict or understanding about the fact that Yaya's partner has become involved with Abigail. And instead, you have Abigail like offering this like thinnest olive branch of like, wow, we're we're safe and, and I want to save you from your previous life by making you my assistant and abigail's like i'm gonna fucking kill you (laughs) (laughs) that's right (laughs) that was i forgot about that line that was that was very it was was like that was very on the nose and great it was that was a perfectly written like what could she conceive of as a way that she could be helpful when that when she doesn't have capital, she doesn't have a gold watch to give. But why don't you come like book my colonics for me and, <laughs> you know, make call the Uber so I can get to the fashion show like that was it was so mind blowing of like you have no concept of the world after all of this. And also Abigail, you know, potentially also like being completely um unreasonable like what is that's a ridiculous thing to do like you're going to kill this girl and then you're somehow no one else is ever going to find the resort and you're going to be in power for the rest of your life like what what neither of you is thinking yeah it was also i didn't understand why carl was running at the end i was so annoyed at that whole scene that 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 was the end and whatever fucking anyways all right y'all we we need to take a break we'll be right back with some freakouts hey ffr listeners Are you signed up to our Patreon yet? If you're not, you're missing out on special content made exclusively for our patrons. And if you're not a patron, that means that you're not helping me get paid. And if you're not helping me get paid, that means my good little dog Griffin isn't getting the good treats. Head on over to patreon.com slash femfreak. That's F-E-M-F-R-E-Q. Become a patron to get great content and also to make sure my dog Griffin gets the good treats. Oh, and you get the good treats as well, which in your case would be quality discussions about media. What's your favorite?
Now it's time to talk about what's been thrilling us, moving us, upsetting us, or infuriating us this past week. Anita, what's your freak out? Yo, uh, Megan is my freak out. This fucking doll. I can't, okay. This is not the kind of movie I would ever see. I saw trailers for it and was like, what the fuck? Like, I would never go see this. This looks so stupid. And then um, one of my movie friends was like, yo, everyone is saying Megan is really good. And I was like, what? I don't understand. I don't really like I'm, you know, you know me. I hate everything. So when people really <laughs> like things, I'm like, I probably hate it anyways. But then the draft house started doing nine dollar Tuesdays. Ah. And I was like, well, I will go see this movie for nine dollars. And was it a rowdy screening? No, this so, should be. Here, so I, I know <laughs> I'm more and more. I would like screenings to be more rowdy and less like in silence. I want more audience participation in films. So that should that's a whole nother freak out. But this movie is fucking funny. Like, really, I was like, there's a 15 minute sequence in the middle where I was laughing the whole fucking time. Like, I really, really startlingly enjoyed this movie. And I walked out of it and like couldn't stop thinking about it. It was just so gleeful. And I like drive home like it took me like a a solid hour after the movie to like come down from watching (laughs) it. It had been so long since I walked out of a theater just really like, man, that was a fun ride, you know? Um, I, uh, I think that it also, like, it's not trying too hard to be anything, you know, like, it just, it knows what it is, and it just nailed all of those beats, and it's, it's, it, like, it just did it. It just fucking did it, you know? And so, I don't know, I'm, I'm still kind of high off the joy of the fact that this movie is so entertainingly, like, what it is, you know? Your satisfaction for an hour and 42 minutes. That yeah. is a tight movie. Not a single thing felt extraneous. Yes. Megan. Everything in it belonged there and it was good. And yeah, exactly. I haven't been that satisfied seeing a movie in ages. Yeah. Short movies, everybody. Start making shorter movies. <laughs> exactly. We don't need this three hour bullshit. I was going to go see Babylon and saw it was three hours. I was like, there's no fucking way I'm watching this in a theater. <laughs> I'm going to need like three breaks in between watching that movie. So <laughs> anyways, highly recommend. Uh, I think it's fucking hilarious and very entertaining. And um, there's there's one moment I really want to call out, but I kind of don't want to spoil it for people who are going to watch it. So I will tell you all that later <laughs> after we're done recording. <laughs> Kat, do you have a freak out? I do, and it is a it is a mixed bag emotionally, but my freak out is Margaret Cho in general. I have been going for the past few years to this weekly comedy show that is amazing and often has like great pop-in guests. Two weeks ago I went and Bobcat Goldthwaite showed up and wasn't on the lineup and it was so cool. And I went to the show last night and Margaret Cho dropped in. And Uh, She has been on my radar, right, as long as I can remember. And I think she had like an MTV reality show or, you know, VH1 reality show when I was a teenager. And um, she has this capacity that I feel like a lot of comics wish they had to yo-yo a set between an acknowledgement of some real hard, scary truths and then giving you the permission to laugh about something completely unrelated in the next breath, and then go right back to the fact that in her set last night, she was talking about the fear that she has as an older Asian woman in a time when there is violence and death that 
can be suffocating um, to members of the Asian community. And it occurred to me that the last time I'd seen Margaret Cho live was about a week after the Atlanta shootings. And how you can't even point to coincidence in things like this because they are so frequent and so feel like this type of violence, this type of gun violence, this type of violence, whether or not it stems from white supremacy, uh, is feels like it can be inescapable. And Margaret Cho will get up there after a set where someone's, you know, talking about my five-year-old was being so silly, you know, and then Margaret Cho comes up and she says something completely honest and genuine. And then she says something completely honest and genuine about douching and you laugh. (laughs) And then she goes right back to the complete honest and genuine fear or sadness. And it's just like, that's the human experience, man. And I just like was reminded, you know, at last time I'd seen her, I was like, you know, excitedly bought a ticket to go see Margaret Cho. And this was just like a drop in at, a, at an outdoor comedy show. And that both experiences in both venues just kind of reminded me like why she has the staying power that she does, because um, she just has like, a, again, a skill and a talent that um, is why I think comics and creators who are that deft with that sort of thing are so important in our scary world. So uh, she's my freak out. I mean, she's the original. Yeah. I was concerned that she said something disappointing and I'm glad. That I know. <laughs> I was like, are, are you going to cancel like, oh, Margaret no. Cho? <laughs> yeah, imagine. Right here. <laughs> just like, I'm oh shit, is it about to happen? Cat spot I... is coming for you. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, just like the fact that like, I'm even hesitant to bring up this situation, right? Because it's like, oh, what do I have to say about it? You know, like, I, 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 I don't know that I have anything additive to say. That's why I was like, well, I guess my freak out is like, weird but that like again she just kind of was this like ray of inspiration of like divine whatever of like this is what you were placed on this earth to do is like show us how you see the world one of the other comedians that i think does this super well is hannah gatsby Mm -hmm. you know where you're just like oscillating between like rage and sadness and anger and laughter all kind of interwoven in in a very similar way and i appreciate that because i think comedy is should be real you know like and that should be right. comedy can be all kinds of things but i appreciate the use of comedy in these kinds of spaces to help people heal right or to well, help people make sense of things that are non that you can't make sense of that's the uh the saying right comedy is tragedy plus time or whatever and it's like th- this isn't plus time this is just tragedy yeah. and tragedy this is tragedy and comedy because that's life and that is just what i love about her Okay, end of fangirl rant. <laughs> Karen, do you have a freakout for us? Well, I do have a freakout, and it's more a kind of sense of feeling puzzled than like being totally stoked or um, being sad about something, whatever. But um, it's it's actually something that I've observed across the field of pop culture recently, and it's related to triangle of sadness because you know triangle of sadness. Uh, ends up focusing on a Filipina, on somebody who's Southeast Asian, right? On, uh, in a kind of surprise final third. And I've just noticed that this is just in prestige projects. Uh. Southeast Asia is making, and Southeast Asians 
are making a lot of appearances, but in these kind of puzzling ways. So it's kind of the opposite of saying, yay, victories for representation. <laughs> and instead, it's like asking us to think, okay, why in The Last of Us, the new uh, kind of prestige series on HBO, which is based on a video game, in the second episode, we learned that the origins of the outbreak, essentially, that's kind of destroyed the world and sent it into dystopian chaos, originates in Indonesia. Uh-huh. And that is a choice, my friends, because in the video game, it was South America. It was still the global South. Mm. But, you know, why move it to Indonesia? And people gave me various scientific answers for why this particular kind of infection or cordyceps was, you know, was happens there, or et cetera. But I was like, that's still a choice. You could have chosen something from another space. Also, and this is vaguely, well, this is spoilery. I'm not going to say what happens, but Tar mm. film yeah. winds up in the Philippines. And I'm like, yo, this is a swerve I was not expecting. Yeah. <laughs> and it becomes a kind of reckoning for the main character. And I'm not going to say much more than that because I don't want to spoil what happened if people still haven't seen Tar. Uh, but I, it really kind of threw me for a loop. And I was like, well, what is what is it about Southeast Asia and Southeast Asians that is inspiring people to turn there as a place of reckoning? Mm. I mean, I have all sorts of historical answers for that, but the way that reckoning is happening is a little bit strange, also a little bit kind of flattening, also you know, kind of a neo-Orientalist in its own way. So I'm just, you know, I'm curious. I'm just curious, like, why, folks? Um, I guess, you know, that's the kind of, you know, it's a kind of old, new, old exoticism. And, yeah. I hate academia, but, man, I love academics sometimes. You know, I'm just like, please tell it. Please go on. Tell us more. I will listen to this TED Talk. Yeah, I mean, you yeah, know, just but, we yeah, can, but just so just super yeah. curious. Yeah. But so like I would love you to know that I, I put that I put that out into the world as a curiosity, as I said, and as as something that's worthy of further conversation, something that I've been talking to folks about yeah. as well. If you are a Patreon subscriber, then we have a Last of Us discussion available just to you, and we do talk about this in that because I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> what is <laughs> happening right now? I was like, are you are you trying to include people of color somehow by wedging them in here? Like, what the fuck? This is not the way to do it, Neil. <laughs> I don't know. Who, I don't know who actually wrote that part, but anyways, uh, yeah, that's super uh, interesting to to observe this pattern and and what it means. You know, I think I'm going to have a couple more questions on that topic in our Patreon bonus today. So, uh, well, this episode is going to be out. The Patreon episode. Whatever, y'all. Yeah, We're recording no, just, it just right, about, literally recording it yeah. right now, but it will be out before you hear this one. So, yeah. you know, turn it back time. <laughs> well, this was great. As I think we all agreed, this movie maybe didn't ultimately satisfy, but it is enjoyable in, in several respects. And talking about it was a lot of fun. So thank you, Karen, for joining us. Uh, where can people find you on the Internet? You can find me at Inland Emperor on Twitter and at Tonksinator on Instagram. Uh, you can find me at Inland Emperor basically on all of the Twitter substitutes as well <laughs> that haven't really, I've not become good at Mastodon in the interim time. But you can also listen to Waiting to Exhale podcast. Uh, that's X 
H-A-L-E, or you can look up The Gay Amazing Race, or just Google me. I have books, and I'm a professor somewhere, so see ya. (laughs) I'm Anita Sarkeesian, and you can find me at Anita Sarkeesian on most things. I'm Kat Spada, and you can find me at Kat underscore EX underscore Machina on Twitter. And be sure to follow Feminist Frequency all over the place at FemFreak. You, do, you, do you like that new Femfree content? It's did our, our social content's doing so well right now because somebody <laughs> is running it for us, and that somebody is Cat. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a Patreon subscriber, be sure to stick around for a bonus episode with our special guest, Karen Tonkson. If you like the show, please help other people find it. We got to work that algorithm. So subscribe, rate, comment on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for for listening. listening. Bye.